0: everyone welcome to this week's episode of the thrive with asbury seminary podcast i'm your host Heidi e wilcox bringing you conversations with authors thought leaders and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep needs today on the podcast i had the real privilege of getting to talk to tish harrison warren she's a priest in the anglican church in north america as well as an author she's written liturgy of the ordinary sacred practices in every Day Life, which won Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year, and Prayer in the Night for those who work or watch or weep, which won Christianity Today's 2022 Book of the Year. And releasing on May 31st of this year, she has written Little Prayers for the Ordinary. In addition to all of that, she currently writes a weekly newsletter for the New York Times, which you should subscribe to, and she is a columnist for Christianity Today. Her articles and mag- her articles and essays have appeared in Religion News Service, Christianity Today, Comment Magazine, The Point magazine, The New York Times and elsewhere for over a decade tish has worked in ministry settings as a campus minister with intervarsity graduate and faculty ministries as an associate rector and with addicts and those in poverty through various churches and nonprofit organizations now tish serves as writer in residence at resurrection south austin she is a founding member of the pelican project and a senior fellow with the trinity forum she lives with her husband and three children in the austin texas area In today's conversation, we talk about all the things. We talk about her books, uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Prayer in the Night, and her new release, Little Prayers for Ordinary Days all of which we'll link in the show notes so that you can order or pre-order your copy as the case may be. We talk about her faith journey. We talk about the liturgies that form our daily lives. And we talk about finding God in the suffering, the importance of liturgical prayer to give us words when we don't have the words. And we talk about how we can take God off trial and rest in His goodness and love and mercy in the midst of really difficult and sad seasons through the hope of the resurrection. And now let's listen to my conversation with Tish. Well, Tish, thank you so very much for taking the time out of your schedule to talk to me today. You don't know how much I've been looking forward to this conversation and getting to meet you. So thank you. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. It's fun to be in
1: person. It really is. It's
0: been a long time since we did an in-person podcast on the regular, so this is a real treat. I definitely want to talk about your books, especially your most recent one, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. But before we do, I want to take a moment to get to know you, if we could. Um, How did you first encounter Jesus? Yeah, so
1: I... um... I grew up—my parents are Christians, um, and I grew up going to, um, like, the Southern Baptist Church in our small town in Texas. So it gives you kind of a sense of um, it's kind of the culture and, and maybe the theology of the church, and, uh, and um, was baptized at about age six, I think— right and that just that just looks like I I love Jesus and I wanted to know Jesus and I went to vacation Bible school and um and a huge actually I remember a, a, a conscious motivation was that everybody else in my church got to have the um crackers and the grape juice <laughs> and I didn't and so okay. because it was just for baptized people and I didn't and was was, so frustrated about that. And so um I wanted the that and I wanted the I wanted to have a grape juice in church. And so we met with the pastor and he, you know, asked me some questions, which I think were just sort of like, do you believe that, you know, you're a sinner that does wrong and that Jesus died for your sins? And I apparently said the right answers because he, he baptized <laughs> me. Um, which is funny because I, I for years I just as a Baptist felt like that was so inadequate, right? Like it was like I just I I didn't I got baptized in part just to have, you know, grape juice and crackers with the church. Like uh-huh. it felt like it's not real enough. I didn't believe yeah. in Jesus enough. And now that I'm an Anglican priest, I think, oh my goodness, I just theologically like I intuited that the sacraments went together. I mean, I was longing for the Eucharist without knowing I was longing for the Eucharist. Yeah. Um because, you know, I felt I'm sure it was I felt left out and liked grape juice. But also, <laughs> um, I had I was eating, my parents let me eat those in church, candy in church. So I had plenty of snacks. I think I just longed I think I was longing for something I, I didn't understand. Yeah. And um and so I I grew up actually I ended up um sort of in a very Baptist way, uh, walking down the aisle and kind of rededicating, re giving my life to Jesus. Uh a little bit older, kind of right I was I was still not very old. I was I was probably ten or eleven. Mm-hmm. And um that was sort of like this is owning it for myself, like okay. this is what I want. And mm-hmm. Um, and so then I felt like my first baptism wasn't adequate and got re-baptized mm-hmm. uh, in this time in a river in Texas, um, which is not uncommon. If you talk to Baptists, there's they'll get to be like, well, I'm not sure I was a Christian before and get baptized again. I now as an, because in, as an Anglican, I mean, I don't even believe re as part, if my husband was here, he would say, "No, you didn't. You didn't get rebaptized. You just got wet in front of a large group of people." Um, because the because I would uh, so for when I when I believed mostly in in believers' baptism, I I would kind of start. I would point to the beginning of my Christian faith with that second baptism. Okay, um, but I actually think the beginning of my Christian faith wasn't that first baptism, and even if I didn't do it for great reasons or totally understand what I was doing, I think grace was communicated to me. I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I received the Holy Spirit. And so um, I think God was after me, and I was, you know what, it's like kids putting on dress-up clothes that are too big Mm -hmm. for them. I had no idea. It was way too big for me. But I was still clothed in this, and the reason I think that's valid is I still think that the clothes don't—I still think the clothes are too big for me, and I still don't think I understand what I'm doing. I don't understand baptism, and I don't understand the Eucharist, and I put on these—it's like my little two-year-old boy that walks around in his dad's shoes, and that's sort of— the whole of the Christian life, I think, is yeah. trying on these things that are way too big for us.
0: Yeah. So how did you then journey from that? Because you, of course, had no idea that you were going to go on to be an author and an Anglican priest. What was the journey like from that point? Well,
1: um, so I grew in my faith, and I, I really, even as a teenager, like wanted to know Jesus, wanted to be faithful, wanted to know God. Um some of this was there were some there was some rough stuff in my family life um with uh um just I, I don't know how how much my family would want me to get all into the details but I I'll say kind of with just struggles with like mental health mm-hmm. and brokenness and my family of origin that um that really were it was pretty desolate it was it was a It was dark time for me as a kid, Mm -hmm. and God showed up um, in really kind of beautiful ways for me, being just a a comforter and a father to me. Mm -hmm. And so um, Jesus felt very real to me in a way that, um, honestly, that I've scarcely even experienced since, but where God showed up to me and suffering in ways that were f- felt fairly undeniable as a, mm-hmm. even as a, like i am I'm, I'm talking like a 11, 12, 13, 14 year old. Wow. And so because of that faith was really important to me at a young age. And mm-hmm. I got really involved in my youth group and I wanted to know w- what it was to know Jesus. Um, so I grew in faith kind of in college started, went through a time of theological questioning, Um, and partly because, so as a Baptist, um, I had heard, you know, about Jesus dying for our sins, about giving our heart to Jesus, but I hadn't, I didn't experience the reality of myself as a sinner very much. I was a good kid. I made good grades. Same. Mm -hmm. Sins were kind of specific things people did, like drinking too much, having sex, before marriage, um, I don't know, doing drugs, lying, stealing, and I right. didn't do those things. Right. And so it felt like I knew I, I mean, I knew I was a sinner. That was the right answer, but I didn't, I didn't have a, a, much of an understand, since I didn't do those sort of the quote unquote bad sins. Mm-hmm. it felt like I didn't, it was more theory. It was, I was in, I was in theory, a sinner. Mm-hmm. And so, um, So really, in college, uh, encountering failure, sin, and myself—not um, through necessarily going and then doing the bat, all the bad stuff—but through seeing ways that I kind of subtly manipulated people, that I, um, that I, basically, I think a much more robust idea of sin is the way our hearts are turned inward, the ways our hearts are turned mm-hmm. towards self-worship, towards self-righteousness. And towards self, ultimately. And so I saw that kind of more and more through some some broken relationships I had in college, and then went through a period of kind of wrestling, asking theological questions, ended up in a Presbyterian church. and i and what kind of blew me away, what changed my life was, I encountered grace, the idea of grace. I'd heard of grace. I mean, we'd sung Amazing Grace, but I had no idea what grace meant. So the idea that I really, really am running headlong away from God and Jesus came after me and um, that it wasn't that— I think my former version of Christianity was that— we sort of climb the rungs of a ladder toward God, mm-hmm. and the point is to sort of become a better and better Christian, yeah. as opposed to the Christianity is that we're not climbing rungs of a ladder. There's we the ladder has burned down. It's fallen. It's <laughs> we're running away from God, and He comes and loves us and woos us and rescues us from ourselves. So I think I had I think I saw sin in myself in a new way. But I also, uh, almost immediately, I mean, with that, it was like, oh, that's why you died for me. Um, that's what the story's about. that That's why I need atonement. And, mm-hmm. um, and so it was that recognition that came with a deep recognition of grace and God's love for me. I mean, a, guy, a pastor named Jack Miller and Tim Keller and others have put it, but it's, I saw that my sin... Was worse than I thought, but that Mm. God's grace and love for me was more than I could imagine, and that became kind of real through a period of of wrestling and doubt. Mm -hmm. And um, man, I don't know. I don't. I mean, now the kids might call it deconstruction. That language wasn't used then, (laughs) and I would not use that language to describe it. I think I was growing, and. and so, um, was Presbyterian for a while and then ended up, um, kind of accidentally becoming an Anglican. Okay. we we, <laughs> well, we were we were in sort of a gap year between it was after seminary and my husband was applying for PhD programs and um and we just needed to find a church pretty quick and we couldn't find we went to several um PCA churches and Presbyterian churches and they weren't they weren't they didn't f- we couldn't go there for one reason or another. Um, I mean, some of it pragmatically, like one was really far away from our house and one was a church plant and we were like, we're only going to be here nine months. And, um, so, uh, we went to this little Episcopal evangelical church that was lovely. And, um, and so we only went for about nine months, and weren't we were like, "This is not. This is summer fling. We're not doing this forever. Right? We'll go back <laughs> to the Presbyterian Church." Uh-huh. And then we just we were bitten by a bug. I, I mean, we just we were we completely. My husband and I both just totally fell in love with liturgy, mm-hmm. um, with the sort of ancient ways of worship, yeah. with sacra- with having the Eucharist every week. And I, I mean, we just couldn't go back. We, we, um, just pretty quick. I mean, I cried every single week in church. I just was. It was overwhelmed yeah. by the beauty of it. It was. Yeah. It was honestly. It was the beauty, and it was the use of my body. Those two things yeah. that kind of drove, that drew me in, and um, and I, could I just couldn't get over yeah. it. It ruined me. And so we, so we, um, became Anglican. And both of us, my husband and I both, ended up getting ordained. Yeah. Um, we're priests together. How I became a writer is a longer, <laughs> different story. Yeah. Um, but the short story of that is that I felt very called to write and started writing just really small. I mean, I I did never know that this would be a career. I, I didn't think it would be a career. It was really a hobby, and I wrote for small outlets. Um, and then people read that and shared it and 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 I um got asked to pitch for Christianity today and so I did and CT uh, I started working with them and they started publishing more of my stuff and then on the print side started publishing and it just sort of and then as as people read my stuff and liked it more people asked me to write and more people asked me to write and I just kept writing and it really grew very organically yeah. over over years. Um writing for smaller outlets that kinda of grew and, and grew and um yeah. and I ended up writing two books and the New York Times came approached me this summer and asked if I would Right. so it's really been it's been by invitation from Which God, a beautiful and from way other to have, people,
0: yeah, a beautiful way to have it happen, you know,
1: yeah, there's no logical explanation for it other than just the Holy spirit and yeah. and God's work. um so when people ask me, you know, how I get a lot, I mean a lot, probably once a month or so, someone will contact me and say, you know how do how do I do what you do?" And it's really hard for me to tell. I mean, other <laughs> than you write a lot and read a lot and think well, um, and just, like spend a lot of your time trying to learn and think, and, and but also write a lot. Yeah. And When someone asks you to pitch, pitch to them. But it but it happened very slowly and and very I was just there's just so I just didn't make any of it happen. It just happened. It mm-hmm. just the it just the Lord.
0: Yeah. The you Lord led the
1: whole thing, so.
0: Yeah, you weren't trying to achieve or, necessi- you know, like that wasn't your, your end goal. You were yeah. just kind of doing the next right thing in front of you. Yeah, it was very
1: much the next right thing. And if there was a, a longing to achieve, it was to—I wanted to—, s- to write beautifully and i wanted to say something true and helpful so the achievement was yeah. the craft itself i think that's still the longing is like can i be better at this can i sit, can it can it be beautiful i really would like to make something beautiful and true and um so that's the sort of that's the quest mm-hmm. you know and, <laughs> yeah Yeah, Yeah.
0: I love that a lot. So as you mentioned, you've written two books, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices for Everyday Life, and Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. And then coming out at the end of May, um, Little Prayers for Ordinary Days. So why did you—because these two are for adults. Mm -hmm. Why one for children now? Yeah,
1: it was a surprise too. It was also kind of by invitation. Uh, IVP um started a kids branch and we had I my child I have three children and I've they were little bitty, tiny when I wrote Liturgy of the Ordinary and have sort of grown with the books and um and now I have an eleven year old, a nine year old and a two year old. Now And so particularly my 11- and 9-year-old, you know, for years they've said, like, Mom, why don't you write kids' books? Like, you write (laughs) these boring books we don't care about. Write books for us. Um, And so then IVP um, had talked to to me about doing sort of a – a, a kid's book and even playing off some of the formation ideas mm-hmm. that I have in particularly in Liturgy of the ordinary for because they they're interested in <clears throat> doing books for kids on formation and so um but I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't want to just i I didn't want to rewrite liturgy of the ordinary for little kids. I, it felt like I don't know i how how would that? Even work, Liturgy of the Ordinary is such a um, such a particular project where I look at, mm-hmm. you know, small moments of the day and how that interacts with liturgy. And I didn't want it just to be boiled down to, like, God cares about your day, little kids. Like, dida- I didn't want it to be overly didactic. For sure, yeah. Liturgy of the Ordinary isn't a very didactic Mm-mm. book, and so I didn't want to then make it didactic for a kid's book. And so... Um, so I had I had my friend Katie was writing um, uh, prayers with her friend Flo, who I also know, but but I know Katie better. I, I didn't know Flo as well, and so Katie approached me actually asking to connect to publishers. So I talked to IVP about them because they were writing they they're from a a band called Rain for Roots which was with mm-hmm. Sandra Kraken that does kids worship oh, music. Yeah. Um and so from the kids worship music they were writing prayers for children and I asked IVP kids if um you know they'd be interested in this and they said, "You know, why don't why don't you join them?" And so we started <laughs> I thought it would be an interesting way if I wanted to talk about Liturgy of the Ordinary without being didactic, instead of saying, "Hey, God cares about your everyday life," to just pray with kids about their ordinary moments. Mm-hmm. felt like it's communicating the same way, but in a much more um, invitational, non-didactic right. kind of way. And so that's how that book. Came
0: about, yeah. Well, I saw the picture you posted on Twitter of um, the inside of your book, and it's beautiful. And it, I just loved how, like, everything you have—the picture here—is for taking a bath or for brushing my teeth. It's just a beautiful embodiment of the ordinary things and why we're doing them with, without, without being didactic, as mm-hmm. you're saying. It's just, it's just lovely. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think the illustrator. I just love. The, I
1: mean, it's a truly beautiful, visually beautiful book, and that's mm-hmm. that is because of. I cannot take any credit for that. That's the, the largely the illustrator and the graphic design at IVP. They did, they did a great job. Um, so yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it takes a village. But I will <laughs> say, they can, working with graphic designers, they can do great things. But sometimes they need really great words to be able to inspire their mm. design too. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So as you think about liturgy, what is the role of liturgy in our lives? Like, what exactly does that mean? Mm -hmm.
1: So um, when I talk about liturgy, particularly when I talk about liturgy um, in Liturgy of the Ordinary, I am talking about, to use this word that I'm about to use, is from James K.A. Smith. Um, He talks about formative practices. Okay. Okay. Um, and so there's two things there. Practices that's things we do, stuff we do, mm-hmm. and formative means it ha- it f- it shapes us or it forms us. It's connected somehow to transcendence and to meaning. Um, I think that we have lots of formative practices in our life um, that we don't recognize how formative they are. And and Jamie James K Smith, who I just mm-hmm. quote, would certainly agree. I mean, he. Um, he if he wrote the book uh he wrote lots of great books but one to hear more on that point specifically is he wrote you are what you love um and he talks about that that sometimes i think quite often the things that form us most deeply we often aren't thinking about or we don't think we are doing a liturgy now um right
0: and yes and, you think of it i think of it as like a like a a prayer that I say, like I'm in church doing right. a liturgy. So I don't think about like, what do I do first thing in the morning? Like, is it reach for my phone or is it, mm-hmm. you know, but that would form me what I do. That's There's, not necessarily a right or wrong, m- maybe, but it forms me. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. And so we talk about liturgy. In gathered worship, which I think is appropriate because those mm-hmm. are formative practices. Yeah. Those are things we're doing that shape us really intentionally if if your church is is intentionally liturgical, these are these are practices that Christians have developed for over a generation intentionally to shape you. I mean, I would also say if your church says, oh, no, we don't do that liturgy, we, we that's not our thing, we're low church, you know, that you're still doing stuff that deeply shapes you, that deeply forms you. It may be that you're just either an, not thinking about how it's forming you or borrowing liturgies from other places, like TED Talks, mm-hmm. rock concerts. Um, these are liturgical, people know how to act. In these spaces, because we have certain expectations. We have seen them, we relate to them in certain ways. Um, it, people raise their hands at rock concerts. They absolutely do. If you look around, people don't do that on the bus, you know, because <laughs> we know it, it's a liturgical space in the sense that it's been shaped by habit, ritual, time. And so we know kind of how to interact in certain spaces, mm-hmm. other, and it's because there are social liturgies around those. Um, so I would say liturgy. So that we talk about it in church services, but but what I talk about in liturgy, of the ordinary, and what many other people have talked about, is that it's it's not reserved for that. Any kind of habit or practice that shapes us or forms us, even in our daily life, there's a liturgy to that. So an example I use a lot is I live in Texas, and uh lots of people's personal liturgy is completely formed around sp- sports seasons in Texas <laughs> like yeah. there's tailgate season there's football there's um like the the there's hunting season these are the kind of seasons that and and it absolutely shapes people's time people's family life the way they spend their money um their emotional, uh, realities at <laughs> different <laughs> parts of the year, uh, whether they're up or down. And so that is a, a, a absolutely a liturgical practice that shapes whole communities of people even.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, sh- and it shapes what you love. It shapes what you value. It shapes what you think is worth giving your life to. And we have all kinds of liturgies like this. So I, habits, it's habits and practices that form us. Uh, Some other really common examples are, I would say, um, lots of people in our churches are formed by talk radio and that's become really a liturgy that shapes Mm -hmm. people. In fact, pastors I know struggle because their people are more shaped by that than what's happening on Sundays. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like you said, I, um, I talk in the book about, you know, going and picking up my smartphone first thing in the morning and the yeah. way that forms and shapes me. So a lot of the, th- I mean, there's been a lot of research um, done on habits and how people are so, I think, I mean, I think it's something like over 90% of what we do is is not a conscious decision. It's shaped by habit. So habits, practices, liturgies, I think all of those sort of um are around the idea that the stuff we do shapes and forms us.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think until reading your books, I had never thought about my daily routine as a kind of liturgy. But it's totally a rhythm, a habit, a practice. And so it's made me start thinking about: is this is this how I want to be shaped in mm-hmm. this area? You know? Yeah.
1: Like,
0: yeah. So it's been it's been really helpful to Thanks. me too. Yeah. Yeah. In Prayer for the Night, you guide readers beautifully through the Compline prayer. You explain its power, and I loved how you walk through kind of each phrase of the prayer because I'm learning it's important to know what what we're praying means, you know, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to liturgy, that it's broader than maybe the specific words, that there's like more nuanced meaning Um so when did prayer change for you and liturgical prayer become something meaningful in your life?
1: Yeah. It was, it was actually before, quite a bit before I wrote the book. Um, I would say in my 20s. I, I had always—I was an adult, though. I mean, I, I, kind of my whole life, I really conceived of prayer as one thing, which was talking to God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with words that you make up or say or conjure, right? And so um although of course I kind, I mean I knew there was the Lord's prayer, you never really said it though. I mean I just, I knew it. Um and but prayer meant me telling God my thoughts and feelings and desires and wants and all extemporaneously and unplanned. Right? Which is still, I want to say, I pray like that all the time still. I still, I think that's a really great and wonderful and valid way to pray. It's still, mm-hmm. it's possible for me that's, at least at this season of my life, how I'm praying most frequently right now. That wasn't always true. Um, but I think, so that's fine. But that's the only way that, that's what I thought prayer was, period. Like, stop, full stop. So, mm-hmm. um. So when people talked about, like, growing in prayer or going deeper in prayer, I just had no idea what they meant. I mean, I think I thought they meant just, like, feeling it more or being more earnest or yeah. spending more time in prayer, like, which I had— too little tight I mean I had like little kids I'm like how much time can I do I, I don't have time to right. you know unless you're like yeah how early in the morning do I need to get up to do this but um so for me I think the first time I kind of encountered the con just the idea of other ways to pray was sometime probably in my upper tw- mid to upper 20s starting, to hear about other kind of prayer books something called valley of vision um people used which is a, a, was prayers from different puritans and then and then visiting the anglican church seeing like liturgical prayer where people were praying other people's written prayers they mm-hmm. you know said these are the words pray them um and i think that i was really i was not um skeptical of that i was really intrigued and I knew, I mean, of course, growing up, I knew that other places, other churches worshiped liturgically and used other people's prayers. But it just seemed like, why do that, right? Why not just, why right? use other people's prayers? And what's that about? And I think
0: I kind of thought, like, it might not count if it wasn't my own words. And I somehow had to figure out what the words should be.
1: Exactly. I think I did, too. I think I did, too. And um, And so it felt like not real prayer to right? me. Like, that's show prayer, fake prayer. And so it was really not until there was a season that I just kind of hit in my twenties where things were rough. I mean, I had, I, um, I don't even remember at the time. I just, I I don't, I don't remember why everything that was happening, but I remember it was a dark season. I kind of had a a relationship fall apart, a, a deep friendship in my life. I had, um, I, I was—I think I was newly married, and our marriage at the beginning of our marriage was so hard. I mean, we had no idea what we were getting into, and it, it kind of—the first—the <laughs> first three years were so hard. I say that in case—in case anyone's listening who's just having a rough time in their marriage, like we—I think we have a really beautiful marriage now, but. It was, we hit a hard brick wall uh, when we got married. Yeah, and it I appreciate you saying really that. was really hard. Yeah, yeah,
0: because I think a lot of people, like, you get married and you're like, oh, it's going to be like wonderful. And it is. And it is also hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm not sure I would have thought it was wonderful at this point. It was just really, really hard. So, marriage is hard. Friendship was things. It was just a really rough time. And I, th- and it felt like I just, couldn't pray. And of course I could like sort of recite words, but the, the language I use, I think I might use this in, in Liturgy the Ordinary. I can't remember, but it, the metaphor I use is that it felt like prayer was like this balloon that got tangled in branches. Like it just mm-hmm. couldn't, it just wouldn't, Yeah, it felt like it bounced off the ceiling. And mm-hmm. I, it just, it felt like I didn't know, I didn't know how to pray. I had too many questions. I was, I, I, was frustrated and felt lots of emotion, and I didn't have words for them. Yeah. So I didn't know how to tell God all of these things. It felt like whatever words I could kind of use to encapsulate the grief and the frustration and the disappointment that I, and disillusionment that I was dealing with at the time, it felt like I don't have words to capture this, or I, I can't—there just felt like vast territories in my life that I knew I just yearned for God— but had no way to tell him or talk about that. Or mm-hmm. this is really hard to articulate <laughs> unless you've experienced that and been there. Then it's hard. But it it felt like um, it's not that I needed fancy words or better words. It was just literally like I. What could I say besides help? Right? Or, right. or just and so um, and so I said help, which is great, but. I wanted other ways of prayer. I wanted other ways to sort of capture this. So a couple of ways of prayer became really important to me. One was prayer with my body. Mm-hmm. I literally started to kneel in church for the first time because mm-hmm. it was the kind of the first time we were going to an Anglican church. And so I'd never knelt in in I'd never knelt to pray in mm-hmm. public before. Mm-hmm. I, I'd knelt to pray privately, but not in public. And mm-hmm. um and so Kneeling, just that experience of God. I don't have words, but I can kneel, and I will hold up my hands, and I need you to hear the prayer of my body, of my posture here, mm-hmm. um, the kind of surrendering posture of mm-hmm. of prayer, and also to pray the words of other people, the mm-hmm. Psalms, the Lord's Prayer. And also just receive prayer in the prayer book. Um, so th- that was incredibly helpful, particularly at that point, the Lord's Prayer, but also ended up also through the prayer book, kind of leading me back to prayer. I That actually was, a, a, that happened to g- kind of a, again in a deeper way um, in 2017, both deeper doubt, deeper struggle, and deeper, it was very mm-hmm. difficult to pray. And in an in and it was actually I think harder at that time, because I was struggling I think I was struggling with doubt a lot mm-hmm. more deeply then and so um so i that's where sort of the book picks up when I okay. talk about writing, but it was I, I think the first time that I really started using received prayer had been you know a a decade or so before okay. then, and that kind of led me into liturgy and 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 then through that, I started praying. Compline and yeah. um, church offices. And so uh, church offices are just four offices of prayer in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. So that's what I mean by that. But um, yeah, so I th- I think kind of then, and then on and off I've used it a lot. Like I, there was a time before I wrote Prayer in the Night where I went through a really difficult church experience, like a, mm-hmm. a pretty, uh, I don't know, a, a traumatic Somewhat spiritually abusive church experience, and liturgical prayer was incredibly helpful after that to that i didn't I knew i i I wanted to pray for those who'd hurt me, I wanted to mm-hmm. forgive, but I did not have the words right. and so using prayer there's prayers for enemies that are mm-hmm. written mm-hmm. like using other people's prayers right. really helped me pray for my enemies yeah. um, because I just couldn't do it I couldn't get there on my yeah. own
0: you didn't have the words or the yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. So I wanna talk a little bit about the Compline prayer, um, where you pick up in the book. Okay. If you would mind wouldn't mind talking to us a little bit about how and why that prayer became so important for you in that moment.
1: Yeah. Well there's a few things. So Compline is um is a whole prayer office. It's a mm-hmm. collection of prayers. Um so it wasn't I, I do frame the book about around one prayer and it's one of my favorites, but it it's not it was really the whole office of Compline. And part of the reason Compline specifically was important to me, um, I had prayed it for several years on and off before 2017. Mm-hmm. And there was something about it that felt deeply comforting to me, kind of soothing and soporific. It's a nighttime prayer. But also... um. Very honest about the vulnerability we face. I talk about this in the book, but I think something about the fact that um it's written for nighttime, that some of that sense of precariousness yeah. like gets into the prayers. So we we pray that we'd be guarded from all perils and dangers of this night. We which so it acknowledges pit that it's perilous and dangerous, right, Right. to live life. Um,
0: And I like—because, like, the night is always more dangerous because it's dark. mm -hmm. But when—I like how you explained when the prayer was written that it was real dark, like, Mm -hmm. not security lights, not any of this. Yeah. And I was like, that's terrifying. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I know. To think—because the Christians have been—there's, I mean— at least we have we have hard evidence that at least since the second third century there were christians ri- rising in the middle of the night around midnight mm-hmm. to pray vigils yes. and when you think about it there was there's no 911 there's if someone comes there's no, it, there's no firemen you know right. there just the nights were so vulnerable and i experienced that i was I lived briefly, very briefly, in East Africa. And where I was was really far from a city. It was really, um, um, there just was no electricity. And so they would, their, the literal translation of their good morning was, how is the night? Um, because nights are there is just a sense of anything. It's so mm-hmm. vulnerable in mm-hmm. in the darkness. And so you get that sense in the prayers mm-hmm. themselves. And I was feeling that. so to 2017, where the book picks up, I my I had moved across the country. My father had died uh, at the be- a week after I moved. I had had a miscarriage and then, hard pregnancy and another miscarriage that mm-hmm. um, um that hard pregnancy ended in miscarriage mm-hmm. a second trimester miscarriage. so um it was this time of grief and it was this time that felt f- where I felt deeply that I was frail and then the prayers sort of pick up on that that sense of of all human frailty and vulnerability and but it also, praise, you know, be our light in the darkness. It's calling f- forth in this place of darkness for Jesus's light to be, to shine in that. Um, but it also, I mean, like the, it uh, repeats throughout Compline, uh, that awake, we may watch with Christ and asleep We may rest in peace, right? Mm-hmm. Like rest in peace, literally what we say when people die, RIP. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, there's there's this kind of recognition of death over and over again mm-hmm. in the prayers, and there's this recognition of, of human vulnerability and frailty. So it became important to me. Well, so why was that important to me? Two reasons. So it was difficult to pray, maybe three reasons. It was difficult to pray, and these were words I could receive. Mm-hmm. But But also, secondly, nighttime specifically became really hard for me and and i've heard this from a lot of people in grief is that during the day you can kind of get busy, you can keep going and those hours at night, those long dark hours feel like they amplify grief and loneliness and um and just being fragile and so Night, so I would get night anxiety and just like could not sit still. The way that I dealt with that was to go to Twitter, or to get <laughs> online, or to stay right. up late. And so sitting still in silence at night was extremely difficult to me. And honestly, if I'm being honest, even now, I've, I've written the book. Uh, sitting by myself and in silence at night is extremely it's difficult. So hard, for me. right? Yeah. I still find it really hard, and so I. Um, but because of that, I, was, I mean, it got crazy where I was just staying up so late. You know, not I was online, and I just wouldn't be still at night. And so I, so prayer specifically for nighttime, sitting in prayer mm-hmm. nighttime, was a huge challenge. But it was also something that I just knew I that I needed to do it to connect with God and to connect with a grief that I was avoiding during mm-hmm. the day. I mean, I was just really avoiding yeah. the own, my own grief. Um, and then the, the last thing I would say is I, at the time, and still I think, but especially at the time, I needed – I wanted God. I wanted to know God but I struggled a lot with trusting God. And so I felt like I needed a lifeline. I needed someone to throw me kind of a, um, yeah, like a, 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 I guess a life ring, right? Mm-hmm. To, um, as I was kind of drowning in the sea of doubt, but I needed it. I, so I needed the gospel, but I needed it to be from people who were really honest that life is hard yes. and that there's sorrow. And I remember at the time I was trying to re listen to this podcast from um, this British evangelical person who's lovely. And I and but their exegesis felt so chipper and upbeat. And I just, I was just like, oh, I cannot do it. Right. I could not receive. It was too positive. It was uh, if that made sense, and I just needed someone to say like, "No, like this is hard. Like living is hard. Living this life, even for for the folks like me with privilege and education, and it's difficult. And um, and God is good in the midst of that. But I needed that first Mm acknowledgement. And the so the prayers. It was was prayers from other people and night. But I also felt like in there. In the what we were talking about, the vulnerability of the prayers, it allowed me to sort of listen to them in a way that I was unwilling to listen to people that were a, upbeat at the time.
0: Yeah. So it kind of, um, was it the prayers were kind of a form of catechesis a little bit? Uh,
1: absolutely. I think prayer is always a form of catechesis. I, though, there's a, um, Really old kind of saying in the church that the lex orandi lex credendi—the law of prayer is the law of belief—and it's because the way we pray shapes how we believe. So, Mm. prayer is always catechetical, which is one of the reasons it's very helpful to not just rely on your own prayers to receive (sighs) prayers from others because it—it's teaching you.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's beautiful. That really is lovely. Yeah. So what did you learn about God during your season of grief? And after reading your book and just living life, I'm not sure that grief is a season. I think it's more, from my experience, it's more intense sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a a both and Mm -hmm. throughout, at least that's what I've found throughout my life. That's right. So what did you learn about God during this season?
1: Well, I definitely learned God is more mysterious than I could ever—I I, I would have said God is mysterious, but I think that I experienced that in a way that, like, that I'm just not going to get answers for things. There's just things we're not going to get answers for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's necessary—I don't think that's something sort of deficient about the Christian faith— I think humanity, I mean, take your, your atheist. And I think there's just things they, if they're honest, that they're not going to have answers for. I just think that part of what it means to be a limited human being is that we all are enduring a deep mystery and, um, and, we're we're long we long for things that aren't have not yet come to pass. Mm-hmm. So I think I've entered into mystery more deeply, but I also um which <laughs> so it's sort of funny to be like, What did you learn about God? And I'm like, I learned how much I don't know. I mean I learned mystery. <laughs> but that's a big but, part of um, it.
0: Yeah. And to be okay with the not knowing. Yeah. I but
1: I also have to say, I think I wrote this book because I really struggle to trust god. And I there's a I think in the first or second chapter, I can't remember, there's I write I write um if we cannot keep trust god to keep bad things from happening to us, then how do we trust god at all? And right. I wrote that. I remember typing that. And that question kind of coming out of me writing that. And I stopped writing. And I said, I don't have any answer to that. I just have, I have nothing to mm-hmm. say. And I, and I'm only on the first or second chapter and I'm, I, I have to, I'm contracted for this book. <laughs> I have nothing to say. And I, I literally just stopped. I walked away from the computer. I was done for the day and I didn't come back for days, maybe mm-hmm. weeks. Um, I write every day. I mean, this is part of my job, but. I just didn't have an answer, right? And yeah. so I, the rest of the book was me like, okay, so the, that's the rest of the book is me tr- wrestling with that question, mm-hmm. and it took this. It was a, it was something like my first draft was something like eighty thousand words. I mean, just enor ridiculously uh-huh. enormous, and I cut up, down about half, um, but it's just because. It took that, I just was pouring out sort of all my thoughts, all my questions, Mm -hmm. all my everything I'd read and studied. It was just sort of this massive kind of, this book is an introspective struggle with how to trust God, how I trust God. But what I can say more than I could have at the beginning of the book, and I'm sure in the future I'll struggle with doubt, and I'm sure, and I've struggled with doubt even since I wrote this book, but I think... So I'm not saying and now it's one and done and like my faith is infinitely victorious now. But I do think that God loves me. <laughs> Which is so it's like I've learned God loves me. It's that Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. But I think um that God is out to get us, but He's out to get us not because not in not because he's cruel or not to hurt us, but absolutely to love us and to set mm-hmm. us free. Um, so I think th- in a in a way that I probably didn't know before this book, this is what I've realized: uh, that there will be grace, there will be mercy, there will be beauty, um, there will be goodness. In my future, whatever mm-hmm. that is, and if that's if that it means that the worst things that I imagine happen, there will be grace waiting for me there that I can't now see, mm-hmm. um, and God will, Jesus beat me there. I mean, He got there first, and um, will be waiting for me there. And so, um, just the tenacity that the love, the love of God. Really, really does move closer to us and move faster to us than the tragedy and the brokenness of the mm-hmm. world. Um, and when you're there, when you go to folks in the places of tragedy, they what they tell you is stories of mercy. So here's here's this will sum up what I learned before I wrote this book. I said. I did not want to write this book. I told God three reasons that I did not want to write Mm -hmm. this book, and and I'm happy to tell you all three. But one (laughs) of them was, um, I know how this goes. And if I write this book, everyone is going to come and tell me the worst thing that ever happened to them. Like when you put yourself out there, a book about suffering, because you you were
0: very vulnerable. Like I I felt like, and I felt like that's why it connected so much. mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So when you, when you talk about this and when you speak about this people come up and tell you about hard things that have happened mm-hmm. to them and when their children died in accidents and when people they love committed suicide and you, the, the, you hear these stories and and I knew that because I'm a pastor I knew that that would happen um, but, and I, I knew that if you talked about suffering people would talk about their suffering and I just I said I don't think I can emotionally handle this and I'm not trying sure to theologically handle this. Like mm-hmm. I'm struggling to trust you if I hear the worst thing of everyone's life. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened was the book came out and it exactly what I said, people came up and told me about the worst thing that had happened in their lives. But this is what I wasn't expecting, is when people did that, they talked about these terrible things that had happened in their life. And then they all start talking about how God met them, and they talk about grace that they um, would not have known had Mm -hmm. this not happened. And not that it makes it okay or worth it, but that um, they were standing, and they were still believers, and they were still intact, and there was still beauty in their lives. Mm -hmm. And um, they saw God in ways that I had not seen God. They, They saw parts of God and, and, and sort of the colors on the spectrum of God that, um, I had not because of, because I have not experienced that kind of need. So, um, I told God, I can't write this book because, you know, I don't think I can handle hearing about all these terrible things in the world. But what I didn't realize is that the story after story of God's God's love and like seeking people in the midst of that. And so, um, I feel like what I've learned from this book is like it's the just reckless love of God is unse it's more. It just is it just is inexhaustible. I mm-hmm. think I think yeah. that's it. That's if there's something I've learned, it's that I'm I'm not going to be able to exhaust Mercy.
0: Yeah. That part of the book that you were talking about really resonated with me as well about um, I think you were telling the story about this couple whose child was having some pretty serious surgery and keeping God on trial. You know, mm-hmm. is he is he good or not good? One because this is happening. Two, if the surgery doesn't go as planned, then we lose our our child, right? And I think it was the husband who came to the wife, or I don't remember for sure. But they were talking to each other, and they said, we have to decide now.
1: Yeah, it was the wife. It was my friend, Julie. Okay, we
0: have to decide now if God is good, or he will be on trial for the rest of our life. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how do you take God off trial? Because bad things are still going to happen. People are going to get cancer, and people are going to die, and all that stuff. But how do we... How do we how do we just take him off trial mm-hmm. and trust that he is good in the suffering in all of that when it doesn't seem good, yeah, well, I think
1: so learning from my friend Julie I think in her in that moment, she realized, I have to decide before I know the results of the surgery. Mm-hmm. I have to decide now, meaning like we we have to. I, I, she was saying, I can't base my view of God's goodness on whether or not the surgery goes as planned, and what she looked to was Jesus. <laughs> was the was the story of uh, God's goodness shown in Christ? And mm-hmm. um, I said that's going to be the basis of my belief that God is good, and not what happens to my son and by the way their son is now like 30 years old and doing great but right. i think um but i think this is also a process i think that it's okay to acknowledge that like in other words i think what julie was doing at that moment was surrendering the results of that surgery mm-hmm. to god and trusting the lord with whatever happened and um and i my guess is that's probably not the last time Julie had to do that. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know. I could ask her. but I think, um, I think that for me at least, learning to trust God as opposed to put God on trial
0: mm-hmm.
1: is this almost constant work. It's this constant sort of like coming back again. um this was a this is a dumb example of this. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's not, but I don't think there um, is a dummy. <laughs> <in that. laughs> but on the, on coming up here to Asbury, uh, uh, my son, my little baby two-year-old who's just has my heart. Uh, I just love this little boy. And he, um, he had the flu last week and it, he, it was great. He had 104.5 fever. It was awful. And, um, and I said, you know, I don't, I called them and said, I don't know if I'm coming and decided to make the decision on Saturday. And, um, and Saturday he was well, no fever, doing good. We decided, I, I said, yes, I'm coming. And then, you know, my flight was leaving Sunday and Sunday he spiked a fever again. It was sick. And so I had, I got on the plane crying and the reason this is dumb is like, he wasn't going to die. I mean, you know. Right. But as an anxious mom, I got on the plane crying that I was leaving my little baby who wanted me and needed me. And I wanted to be with him. And and I felt tricked. You know, it felt like, God, like, you tricked me here. Like, he got better on Saturday. Right. And, um, and so to believe, like, well, is the character of God that I feel tricked right now or is the character of God, like, who he has revealed himself Mm -hmm. to be as one who loves me. Um, And so what I did, because I was mad at God, and I told him, and I think that's fine. I mean, I said, I'm very angry at you right now. You could have kept his fever away, and you didn't, and I'm mad. And I trust that you're not like this trickster God of the Greeks. You're (laughs) of like Greek mythology. I trust you are god who blesses children cuz you came to earth and you bless children yeah. right and um so on the plane this is i told god i don't see mercy here and i need to see mercy and i'm having a hard time seeing it but it because partly cuz of i wrote 80,000 words and did this work i realized there is mercy i just can't see it like uh-huh. it's my mm-hmm. eyes are not dial- my it's like how your eyes yeah a pupils dilate in the night yeah. to let in light like my I I my pupils had not dilated to see mercy. so on the plane, I wrote down every glimpse of mercy that I could find mm-hmm. from I mean, just everything from uh, the rev- of course, the rev- revealed person of Christ who mm-hmm. Jesus is, but also that um. I was really thirsty and I was given water on the plane, right? And also, it was a safe flight. And also that um, uh, my son has a father that loves him and takes care of him. I just wrote down – I wrote down every small thing down to um, – that I, you know, had a place to sleep that night. Just honestly, like, looking for mercy. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, there's a way it could be like, okay, so you just have got on trial, but you're just focusing on the good things, right? Mm-hmm. Which is but that wasn't. My heart wasn't like, well, let me write down all the bad things and all the good things or or let me just write down the good things and ignore the bad. My heart was like, look, I my emotions right now are telling me that you are not trustworthy and that you are out to get me. That you tricked me. What I know of you from who you showed yourself to be in Jesus and also just faithfulness to me over the last 42 years is that you love me. And so I'm just going I'm just going to um let you help me be grateful and show me moments of being loved. Mm-hmm. And so for me even that practice was a like surrender of it was a it was a surrender and it was I I just what I told the Lord was, I don't see mercy. So I need you to open Mm -hmm. my eyes to it. And Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, I mean, that's like a very small moment. Mm -hmm. It's not, it wasn't, my son wasn't in surgery and I wasn't making this choice of of what Julie was. But I, so how do you take God off trial? You take God off trial by meditating on his love and goodness. Over and over and over and over and over, and if you have a heart like mine, that's where you find trusting hard. I think that it takes. Um, so I'll just be totally honest. It's it's a lot easier for my husband to take God off trial than me. He has mm-hmm. kind of a gift of faith and trust. I just don't have. Mm-hmm. And um and so for me it is a walk uphill to trust God and to take God off trial. So it's just kind of, it's an exercise. Mm. Um yeah.
0: Mm. I like that that's very helpful because I feel like it should be like it is for your husband, that it's like easy and whatever happens is fine. I'm not saying he thinks that, but like you said he had the gift of faith and trust. Mm-hmm. And so it's more like this is hard and it will be, you know, yeah, yeah. But I think looking to Jesus, I know that
1: I said, you know, the answer is Jesus. But it, it's, I do, I think, meditating on who Jesus is, mm-hmm. and that there's not a, there's, there's not a hidden bad God behind the back of Jesus, right? Um, is really a, an enormous need for for us to trust God.
0: Yeah. And I like what you also said. Um, in that section too, that when we're asking God, why is this happening, that what we're really asking is for it all to be made right. Mm-hmm. And in that, I found immense hope because I was like, that is exactly what I'm asking when I've heard other people ask underneath their question and I was like, oh, that makes me feel hopeful because it will all be made. Yep. I mean, I believe it will all be made right. Yes, which is why some
1: of this, like, how do we take God off trial? Like, the answer really is, like, the resurrection, <laughs> yes. honestly. Like, it's that I don't—when I have God on trial, it's because I don't believe the resurrection. And so coming back to as we're coming up on Easter, this is appropriate, yeah. but—
0: and your podcast releases, like, the Tuesday after Easter, so oh. it's perfect. perfect. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tim, Tim Keller called Easter— the universal solvent. He said it just eats through every fear, every dis- all despair. And I th- and I think that's it. I think our hope really really is the resurrection. And so um when when I think that my hope is my life going well, my kids being safe, my dreams coming true, the things that I want that are really really good, honestly good things from God, those happening, then that becomes my hope and not the resurrection. And it's because I my belief in the resurrection is often pretty thin. I'm a Christian, (laughs) and I hope God has mercy for that. But but, uh, my belief in the resurrection is wavering all the time. And I think it's to the extent that my belief in the resurrection wavers, that's when I put God on trial to show he's good some other way. And so for me, I mean, I just— Need mercy to believe the resurrection and the and the renewal of all things to come, which is based on the resurrection,
0: right, because I think for me, I was like, I would never say I don't believe the resurrection because of course, you do. I do, but but I don't always live like I believe it. That's right, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's the struggle is to live like we believe the resurrection actually happened <laughs> right yeah that is that is the struggle that's by that is the project of the my whole yeah. life
0: yeah for sure well this has been quite a conversation I I feel like we could just go on talking that we're kind of just getting started <laughs> <laughs> um I have one question that we ask everybody who comes on the show but is there anything else that you want to mention that I didn't know to ask you I don't think so.
1: I you should tell your listeners I have a New York Times newsletter on okay. every week on faith, and I would love it if they subscribed. And they have to subscribe to the New York Times to get it. Okay, but they can subscribe to like just the digital, like the lowest level of subscription, and then they can get it. So oh, awesome! I would love for them to do that. Okay. That's a little self-promotion, but I would love for them to do well, that. Well,
0: I, I we will do that. I'll link to all of that in the show notes so that people can be sure to find it. And then after reading your books, I would definitely encourage anyone listening to grab a copy of those as well. So, And we'll link that all in the show notes too. Great. So now the one question that we ask everyone, because the show is called The Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one practice or more that is helping you thrive in your life right now?
1: one practice or more um one of them is i'm trying to read more poetry mm-hmm. and i'm specifically reading it like like when i wake up in the morning or before i go to bed and that's been really wonderful mm-hmm. um i love poetry and it's just, it's a delight and it also kind of like i don't know it slows down my body and it slows down my brain and it's like helps me pay attention to my life um to pay attention to the ha- liturgies that are forming me, and mm-hmm. so um, that's been good. Poetry. I mean, there's so many. Like I just wrote about this, but our family. So slow Saturday mornings have become a really important thing for me. My job, because I have weekly deadlines now with the New mm-hmm. York Times, is pretty intense. And yeah, would be. so having um, just so. Slowness has become a real huge priority for me to have times of very intentional slowness. Mm -hmm. And so um, Saturdays we get up and we make like pancakes or biscuits, something that takes a second to make. Mm -hmm. And then we usually go hiking and we take it really slow. And that's been a really beautiful, that's been a sustaining practice for me. Um,
0: That's lovely. Yeah,
1: yeah. So those are two those are two of them,
0: Poetry um, and Slow Saturdays. Mm-hmm. I like it. yeah, <laughs> I like it, yeah. Well, Tish, yeah. thank you so very much for being on the podcast today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. It's been good. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Tish Harrison Warren. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I especially appreciated her authenticity, her vulnerability, and the way she thinks deeply about her faith. It just left me with a lot of hope, and I hope it did the same for you as well. Of course, I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, be sure to grab a copy of any of her two books, seem to be three books, um, if you haven't already done so, and be sure to thank her for being a part of today's episode. As always, you can follow at Asbury Seminary in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.